Hi everyone, before we start the show, I'm really excited to let you know about our next live Bigger Questions recording of 2019. You can be part of the live audience when we ask the big question, why do we explore space reflecting on 50 years since the moon landing? So why is space the stuff dreams are made of? Well, this is what we're thinking about as we record a very special Bigger Questions episode to commemorate the 50th anniversary of the moon landing. And to do this, we have three guests who are out of this world. Dr. James Murray, President of Mount Burnett Observatory, Dr. Jonathan Clark, President of Mars Australia Society, and Diane McGrath, who actually wants to move to Mars. We're boldly going where no bigger questions conversation has gone before, and you can join us. We're recording at 7pm Monday, 3rd of June at Campari House in the city of Melbourne. Get your tickets at biggerquestions.org and click on Next Recording where you can sign up. Now be quick, because unlike space itself, tickets for this event are not infinite. So come along, ask your big questions, bring other big questions and experience Bigger Questions Live. We hope to see you there. Now, to this week's show. This is Bigger Questions, with your host, Robert Martin. Welcome to Bigger Questions, recorded live in the city of Melbourne. Today's big question, should religion have a say on election day? And we're asking this question today to two people. First, to Helen Bell. Helen worked as a policy advisor for Commonwealth Treasury on indirect taxation. She has worked with University Christian Group at La Trobe University for many years and now works with university students at Melbourne University. And she joins me now. Please welcome Helen Bell. (laughs) We're also asking this question today to Adam Cheng. Adam was born and raised in Melbourne, studied arts law at Monash University and worked as a lawyer and then ministerial advisor to the Abbott government. He is now pastor of Cross and Crown, a new church in Melbourne's east. And he joins me now. Please welcome Adam Cheng. Now, as we begin this conversation, we want to affirm that Bigger Questions does not endorse any particular political party or candidate. This forum is one to stimulate discussion about the big questions relating to the relationship between religion and politics. Although, Charles Schultz, the creator of the Peanuts cartoons, once said, there are three things that I've learned never to discuss with people, religion, politics, and the great pumpkin. Now, we're talking about at least two of these today, but Helen, why do you think people are reluctant to talk about religion and politics? I think it is divisive. People have different opinions. Yeah. And these opi- the opinions are often strongly held. They're quite personal. Yeah. Uh, and so if people feel passionately about something and they express it with passion, we can get quite uncomfortable in, dis- in right. disagreeing. And, and so this is why it's hard to have conversations so. sometimes about that. But Adam, do you think that we can, can have better conversations about these things though? I think whether we can or not, uh, we need to have better conversations about these things. Right. Uh, I think fundamentally uh, we don't elect politicians to be technocrats. Uh, we elect them to give us a vision for where they want to take us as a country. Right. And so to have proper conversations about these things is absolutely essential. Um, politics uh, is like the body of society and without religion we don't have a soul. So we need both. Right, okay. To kick up bigger questions, we like to ask a couple of smaller questions. We do try to have a bit of fun on the show. Today, we're asking Helen Bell and Adam Cheng if religion should have a say on election day. So I thought we'd test you on how much you know about political elections. Now, do you feel qualified at all? Me, no. <laughs> Slightly. Slightly. Well, there's two questions. You can go first. <laughs> so, there's two questions, both multiple choice. Question one. 
According to the Guinness Book of Records, the most fraudulent election ever was the election of Charles King to the Liberian presidency in 1927. Now, Charles King received 234,000 votes in this election. How many registered voters were there in Liberia at this time? Was it A, 260,000 voters? People were suspicious when he won 90% of the vote. Was it B, 234,000 voters? Every single voter voted for him. Was it C, 212,000 voters? Something went wrong here. Or was it D, 15,000 voters? Something went seriously wrong. So which of those, how many registered voters were there in Liberia at the time? And he won 234,000 votes. Liberian politics isn't my strong point. <laughs> okay, um, right, yeah. But they say if in doubt, choose C. Choose C. So I'll choose C. Okay, you go for C, so you have 212,000. What about you, Helen? What was you... B the 100%? Yes, it was. I'm yeah. going 100%. Okay, well, unfortunately, both of you are wrong. <laughs> um, so the answer is actually D. Um, there were 15,000 registered voters. So something, and that's probably the reason that it's been described in the Guinness Book of Records as the most fraudulent election ever. Okay, well, it's question two. And hopefully, that was actually the easy question of the two. So we'll see how you go. We might be able to see how, if you can pass. Anyway, question two. Which of the following was elected after campaigning with the slogan, it can't get any worse? Now, note that all of these options were actually elected to public office. Okay? So was it A, the illiterate Grumpy the Clown, who was elected to Brazilian Congress? Was it B, Cacareco the Rhinoceros, who was elected to a city council, also in Brazil? Was it C, a mule named Boston Curtis, who was elected in the United States? Or was it D, a foot powder called Pulveepius, who won a mayoral election in Ecuador? Now, all of these won. Which of these won with the slogan, it can't get any worse? Helen, I go Ecuador. Ecuador? D. Okay, I wouldn't, but it's okay. <laughs> I, I go America. You go America. Well, unfortunately, the answer is actually A, Grumpy the Clown. Uh, the election campaign of Grumpy the Clown, also known as Francisco Oliveira Silva, boiled down to, I don't know what congressmen do, but vote for me and I'll let you know. Uh, and he also heavily used the phrase, it can't get any worse as part of his campaign. He got over 1.3 million votes and was easily elected. So um, unfortunately, Helen and Adam, maybe you shouldn't stand for election uh, because you got zero of our smaller questions right. But please, give them a big hand. Anyway. So a clown gets elected in a landslide with the slogan, it can't get any worse. Bernard Baruch once said, vote for the man who promises least, he'll be the least disappointing. Why are there such low expectations with government and why the cynicism? Adam? I think we've seen, and look, I think this is uh, consistent on both sides of politics, particularly over the last 10 years, uh, there's been a consistent uh, history of promises being made and then not kept. Yeah. And I think people are rightly cynical about that. Yeah, it can't get any worse, so to speak. Well, well, maybe it could. I think it can, but <laughs> let's pray that it doesn't. Uh, right. Okay, yeah. What about you, Helen? Any, any other thoughts about why, it's, why the low expectations? I wonder whether we want a lot from our government. And perhaps they... So, yeah, I think there's a disappointment in the promises they make. But I think we want those promises uh, because life doesn't always work as we, we, we hope it will. Right, yeah. And so there's a sense of, as a community, we want things to be better. They're promising better. So, so sometimes I think it's they can't mm. deliver yeah. on what we want from them. Right. Maybe we set them up for failure as well. Yeah, well, that raises the question then, what is the role of government then? What should government be promising or people being elected be campaigning for? 
I don't know, I'm a Christian, so I come at it from a Christian perspective. I think one of the things the Bible says the government is there to do is to commend good and restrain evil. Mm -hmm. I think that's one thing I would like to see government do. Yeah, so that's, that's a key role of government. Adam, do you want to... Uh, I think it's a, it's a really good point, not just what government does do, but also what it doesn't do. And quite often we look to government uh, to do things that might be our responsibility or might be the responsibility of society and other people in life. Uh, and then when they don't meet those expectations... Uh, we invariably get disappointed with them. Yeah, yeah. So then why does government exist then? So you've mentioned, Helen, it's about to promote good and restrain evil. Um, but is there more that the government does? I think government has a coordinating function. We live as communities. Communities have to make decisions together. We, we, yeah. we live with each other. What I decide impacts other people. There needs to be a coordinating function. So I think one of the things government can do is can actually sort out what is the good that we want to head to as a community right. and facilitate that happening in a way we just a pack of individuals making decisions individually can't right. do. So mm. I think we need government. Yeah. So is that sense sort of promoting a, sort of a certain vision for society perhaps? Is that what you're sort of suggesting? I think they have to. Yeah. How else do we have cohesion as a community? Mm. Which is something that gets even more complicated with a diverse society, people with different backgrounds and different value sets. And Australia is a pretty multicultural nation as well. And so that's a great challenge for government to find a cohering vision in amongst great diversity. Mm. Mm. Do you think we have a, a vision in our, in our country today or is that one of the problems? Uh, John Howard said when he was Prime Minister that his vision was for every Australian to feel comfortable in their own skin. I know um, Tony Abbott said that his one was um, uh, that individuals uh, could write their own vision. Mm -hmm. So he was more reluctant to actually cast a national vision. I think um, whatever side of politics you're on, uh, there is a gap right now in terms of what's our vision for the good? Mm. What is the actual good towards which as a society we're moving? Mm. Mm. Well, modern society sort of, sort of celebrates the triumph of the individual, you know, a self-actualising, do whatever you, know, you can to achieve your dreams, whatever makes you happy. Can that be a vision? It can be. It can be. But it can be taken too far. And also it becomes a difficult vision when you're thinking about more than one person. Yes, uh, or when there's different competing goals or competing well, that's right. So you can have the approach to society that says uh, do no harm, that each individual has the right uh, to govern their own life, but ultimately there is going to be a point where that, that exercise of individual liberty uh, will come into conflict with someone else's rights and liberties. Yeah. And so part of government's role is to negotiate what that relationship should look like. Mm. And this is where it can be disappointing for some or exciting for others, I suppose. Well, even the language we use, I used to work in tax policy, winners and losers. Right, that's, just, what, that's is, what you used to talk it, about. It is, I produce tables on that. Um, <laughs> right. It's loaded language designed to make some people feel good and bad about their past and their present and their future. Hmm. And it's quite individualistic because maybe I lose because what happened in the past is not ideal now and someone else needs a top-up. Yeah, okay. But what then of the place of religion in the political process? Uh, there's been many cases where this relationship hasn't been particularly good, it's been done badly. Would you, would you agree with that? Oh, yeah, I think... Uh, <laughs> be a brave person who said it was perfect. <laughs> That's right. And, and the reality is religion and politics uh, at their worst can do a lot of damage, but at their best can do a lot of good. Uh, and so often we talk about... Um, the separation of church and state, but we mustn't confuse the separation of church and state with the interaction of religion and politics. 
they're, they're two different concepts there. Mm. Mm. Yeah, well, on the separation of church and state, American comedian George Carlin once said, I'm completely in favour of the separation of church and state. My idea is that these two institutions screw us up enough on their own, so both of them together is certain death. So what does the separation of church and state actually mean, Helen? I think there's a variety of interpretations of it. So when we talk about separation of church and state, it's actually worth asking questions about what do you mean when you say that. Right, yeah. So does it mean that a, a person of faith can have no, can express no opinion based on their faith? Yeah. Does it mean that there is no space for me to say, as a Christian, I think, because of what the Bible says? Yeah. Or does it mean the government won't privilege any particular faith position? Or does it mean the people in government can have no opinion on faith? So I, it can mean any a range of things. And people have advocated for each of those different views, though, haven't they? And still do. Yes. Yeah. And different governments have slightly different landing points for that. The French are not quite the same as the Americans are not quite the same as the Australians. They, those things land in slightly different mm. places. But the separation of church and state means something a bit different in Australia than perhaps the US, does it, Adam? Yeah, there are there are differences both in the, both in, in the constitutions of both countries, but also in the culture of both countries. I think so often we'll look to laws and constitutions to tell us clearly this is what it means, but in reality, on the ground, the way that it plays out in practice and in culture can be quite different. Mm. So in Australia, it's we've got a section in our constitution. I think it's 116 that talks about the government not being allowed to establish a religion, uh, to prescribe a religious practice. Uh, to make it a requirement of Commonwealth office uh, for that person to have a particular religion. Mm -hmm. uh, so th those are the particular contours of um, the separation of church and state in right, Australia. Yeah. So and what, history often determines well, that's right. where, how that comes into being, right. the history of the country. Mm. So what's the purpose of the separation then? What's it for? A lot of people would like to say that it's there to protect uh, the state from the church. Yeah. And, and look, let, let's face it, there, there are enough examples in history to bear that out as... Um, probably a healthy suspicion to have but it's also there to protect not just the church but also other religions as well and other people of faith or no faith because if the government will then take steps to establish one particular religion it's then going to privilege one group of society over everyone else mm. so it's actually there for the protection uh, for people of different faiths but also of no faith. Mm. But Helen, isn't the issue with religion in politics is that, as you've alluded to before, that it advocates for values that aren't shared. They're not sort of part of this common vision, so to speak. So surely we can only propose values in the public space and in the political process which unite us and are common and not specifically religious ones? I'd hope our values are not always static. So I hope there's space for discussion about what we value as a people and why we value it. Mm -hmm. Uh, and I, I probably argue, well, I do argue uh, that religion has a has a valuable role in talking about what we value, why we value it, asking questions about what it looks like now and what it could look like in the future. Yeah. Uh, and I, I don't know how I as a Christian articulate that without grounding it in my faith or the story of Jesus. Yes. So, I, so how does that value, impact you? Values by themselves are vague and fluffy and can mean anything. They, they have to be particularised and I think that's a good discussion to have. I don't think you should compel people to hold certain values, but I think you can argue for them and you can demonstrate or argue for their goodness or give examples of them. And just as a point of consistency, uh, every election that we have, every policy debate that we have uh, is a question of values. It's a contest of values. So whether uh, those values 
come from or have an interaction with religion or not. Uh, it's not as if this is politics is a values-free space, even though sometimes it feels that way. Mm -hmm. um, there's no doubt that the Labor Party and the Liberal Party and, and the Australian Greens and other independents all come uh, to the discussion with different values. Mm. And effectively, each election, what we're doing is uh, we're choosing as a society uh, which value set do we want to subscribe to and the manner in which that plays out in policy. And this is the beauty of democracy, isn't it? Like, I'm not saying democracy is the only valid form of government, but one of the lovely things about it is that we are given permission and encouraged to engage in this discussion. And we're able to revisit this every so often. I, I, I would mm. consider that a good thing, and why would you not engage in it? Mm. So then how legitimate, therefore, is it for someone of religious background to assert their values in the public space? Asserts a strong word. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe no more and no less than anyone mm. else in our system. Mm. Right. Uh, I don't think there's a privileged position for people of faith, uh, but I don't think there should be a disadvantaged position either. And my concern would be that if we start disadvantaging one group's right to speak, uh, what then happens for other groups in society at different times of uh, history in our, in our nation? So then how do we work out what are the best values? I think you talk about them yeah, and you, you argue for them and you listen to other people argue for theirs and you engage in these arguments respectfully, not trying to take someone down or prove someone wrong, yeah. but actually unpack what they think and why. Mm. And you explore different options. I think that that should be in the public space. So do you think we're good at listening then? Oh, no, I'm always right. <laughs> okay. um, How about you, no, Adam? Yeah. <laughs> I, I don't... Listening makes you vulnerable. So I think genuine um, discussion about difference of opinion um, requires the willingness or the, the possibility that you might change your mind. Mm -hmm. And if you look at the political process right now, but it's, it's always been this way, that in uh, discussion and political debate, quite often instead of uh, listening to the other side's opinions or arguments, we'll caricature them uh, and actually not listen to their strongest perspective. Uh, but we need to be able to understand and also more than that articulate the other perspective and then be able to respond to that uh, with wisdom. A question has just come in from our text line from our live audience here. Practically though how do we make it work so all voices are equally heard and should all voices be equally heard for example extremist violent voices etc. Adam? That's I think as Helen said part of the conversation for us to have. Uh, if we feel as a society that there are particular perspectives uh, that are going to incite violence against particular groups. That's something we don't want. Uh, but I do think we need a robust uh, social conscience as such, as such to be able to deal with perspectives that we might not naturally listen to. Uh, and I think if we become too sensitive uh, towards uh, perspectives that we might not agree with and then want to ban them, I think that's, that's a dangerous road to go down. We're asking Helen Bell and Adam Cheng today's big question of whether religion should have a say on election day and perhaps a vision of the Christian way of engaging the political process is found in the New Testament book of 1 Peter. Peter writes in chapter 2 verses 13 to 17, Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. So is this suggesting that there perhaps something about the role of government? Helen? Romans 13 says something very similar. It talks about the government as God's servant. And I yeah. think that's what's being picked up on here. Government, in God's, uh, the way God has structured the world, he has given a role to government. 
it is to encourage good, it is to restrain evil, that suggests we need help doing that because we don't instinctively and automatically do that by ourselves. Yes, yes. And we find it difficult to do in community, not just individually. Yeah. And God has given us government for that purpose. Well, that's what it says here in verse 14. They're sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. So it's actually for the good functioning of society, it would seem to be. Would that be right? That's right. And I think it's then a discussion for us to have in terms of what is that wrong and right. Yes. Uh, I think one thing that you uh, can understand from this passage in 1 Peter is not just what government is there for, but as we said at the beginning, uh, the limits of its authority. Mm -hmm. Uh, It it doesn't have uh, ultimate authority over each and every person's individual personhood. Uh, It's got quite a clear role that's defined there and a scope to its authority as well. Mm -hmm. But it seems like, is the scope here to promote the specific interests of Christians though? Not at all. (laughs) That's not what it says at all. So, but does, does it say anything about the relationship of church to state? If anything, in context of when this was written, Christians uh, were not just not in a privileged position, they were actually in a persecuted position. Uh, They were the minority in that context. So this command to submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority... It's pretty uh, radical. It's pretty radical, given to a group of people who were not at the centre but were actually at the margins of the political process. Mm. They were meant to support government, even when government didn't always further their own interests. So do you think that the Bible might have something positive then to contribute to our modern political discourse? I think personally one of the things I've been challenged about uh, probably in the last five or six years is how I talk about government. So this is kind of submitting to government and honouring it. Um, I think that's more than just doing what you're meant to. So just trying to work out what does... How, how do, as Australians, we're very cynical yeah. and disparaging about the way we talk about our government. What does it mean for me to submit to government as given by God in my language. And so... That's a challenge. It's a challenge in our conversations about government. It's not just do I submit begrudgingly, I think, but what does it mean to respect the function God has given government in the way I speak and live and vote and all, yeah. And that's right. I think um, it's also recognising where are we in this command? So it says uh, to submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority, but actually living in Australia in a liberal democracy... We're in this strange situation where each and every one of us have a dual role, both as those who are governed, but also uh, through our democratic political process, we actually bear the responsibility of government as well. Mm. So So this makes it a bit more complex then. It's it's as much our job, not just to submit, but also to work for good and to combat wrong. Mm -hmm. And to recognise what government can't do and can do, to accept those limitations and privileges. That's right. Yep. Well, Peter goes on to speak about how Christian believers in particular should live in this space. He says, live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God. Honour the emperor. So what's the the sort of the posture that's been described here? I think uh, humility. Yeah. Humility. Uh, And being in a Western society like Australia, it can be easy sometimes for Christians to assume a historic privileged position in society. Uh, But actually, we're told here that we're to approach this as those who have no entitlement as such, uh, but to acknowledge and respect the government for the role that it has. Mm. Do you find that hard, Helen? I find that very hard. Just like most people, I like power. <laughs> um, I think we've been persuaded that power is what gets things done. 
what Jesus tells me is that humility is what gets things done. And that's very countercultural and incredibly relevant when you're talking about government because you're talking about giving power to people. And so how they choose to exercise it becomes really important. So we need to work out the relationship between power and humility. Um, I guess a related issue would be justice and mercy. How those things go together are really important and they're really important for government. So one of the ways we need to be thinking about government is how do we help them think about power expressed with humility and judgment expressed through grace. So it's not always about particular policies, I don't mm, think, in terms of Christian attitude. It's, it's about a posture, which, yeah. with both which key back to humility and grace and, and the recognition we can be wrong. That, that's right. But you wouldn't want to go down the path of assuming that a posture of humility means that we don't engage at all. And that, that would be wrong as well. And I think sometimes we like to deal uh, in black and white and, and deal with false, false antitheses. But actually, uh, we're not just to submit, but we're to participate as well. Hmm. Um, so what then does it mean then in this context, or perhaps today, to honour the emperor? I think it means obeying the law where you can as an individual. Uh, as a community, I think it means engaging in the political process of being a democracy. Uh, which means we can say things, we should say things, we should say them well, we should say them in a way that encourages other people to express their opinions. Uh, we listen to what people think and we engage with that. We don't just speak, we listen. Uh, I think it means we vote as individuals and we think about how we vote and we recognise the subtlety in the political process. You don't just vote for a policy, you vote for a, a group of policies, actually thinking through that. And we have a preferential voting system. Think about where your preference are. Mm. So at an individual level, we respect the system we're in by participating in it well, I think. And, and respecting the outcome yes. as well, mm. I think. Uh, sometimes when we don't get the outcome that we want, we, it's easy to kick up a fuss. Uh, but part of the system that we have says that actually every three or so years we get an opportunity to directly engage in the process through our vote. But there are also other ways consistent uh, with that process throughout the cycle that we can uh, engage. Now, some more questions have come in from our text line from our live audience here. Uh, Helen said we should submit to governments in our language, but after the last 10 years of constantly changing prime ministers, isn't that behaviour worthy of critique? You can critique something by saying you're a pack of idiots, <laughs> or you can critique something by saying this worries me because. You can disagree respectfully, or you can disagree disrespectfully. Mm, mm, okay. So do you think that the relationship between religion and politics could be done well? I have to say yes. <laughs> I, think, I think there needs to be a bit of optimism. Yeah. Could the Christian faith perhaps propose a vision for the common good? I think so. And I think particularly with um, someone mentioned at the, changing, uh, cult the culture of changing prime ministers that we have, one of the differences uh, and I think distinct things that Christianity can bring to the table is a vision of leadership that's actually humble. Uh, you have a leader in Jesus Christ who exercises his power uh, not for himself, but actually sacrificially for the sake of other people. And if you said that there's an Australian political leader who does that, I think most people would want to follow him or her. Uh, but I think so often we look and are found wanting. Mm. And I suppose the other thing is that the Christian faith is not necessarily proposing that we become a Christian theocracy, so to speak, though. Would that be, would that be fair? I don't think that's what we're looking for. I don't think that's what the Bible suggests. Not what, what this Peter's is not about overturning the government. The government no, structures no. for the sake of the Christians. It's about restraining, promoting good and restraining evil, perhaps, as you said before. Of which Christians don't have a monopoly on. No, no. So, wrapping up, Helen, 
and Adam, should religion have a say on election day? I'll start with you, Adam. Uh, yes, uh, on election day, all day, every day. Uh, I think that's a, uh, but done well uh, and done wisely in a way that represents, for Christians, that represents Jesus well. Mm -hmm. Helen? Uh, I think uh, for the sake of integrity as well, it must. That if I am a Christian, it must inform, inform my opinions. And if there are Christians working in government, it must inform their opinions. So, I don't want people lacking integrity. And at that point, I think I personally would prefer it articulated that this is what I think and why. There's an integrity in that. That when you, when you can't say that, you're asking people to be less than honest with those around them. And that's worrying, not just, in, not just when you're discussing religion, but when you're discussing anything. Mm. Let me leave you with the Bible's answer to the big question, should religion have a say on election day? From 1 Peter 2, 13 to 14. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and commend those who do right. I look forward to you joining us next time for Bigger Questions. Please thank our guests today, Adam Chang and Helen Bell. Bye.